Hello everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to our afternoon Dhamma session. I'm joined here again by Olivia, Chris and Max who are standing by to take your questions. Olivia will be asking them, I will be answering them. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for questions to come in, I'll talk a little bit about the Dhamma. So today's topic is, I, called, I labeled it the castle. I'm not sure this is exactly what the Buddha had in mind when he taught this, but the Buddha taught something about an arahant, about one who has freed themselves from suffering. It's in, it was in our study group session this morning on the Alagadupama Sutta. We're still on the same sutta. A lot of good discussion. But he offers a series of similes. I think it's five similes. Five similes. And they paint a picture of someone who is living in some sort of castle or fort. Some sort of building of some sort. And this building is very well protected. It's got a moat. It's got a, a big gate with a bar across the gate. And not only that, but it's got some sort of a bolt as well. A lock. It's got um, strong pillars, very well and securely fashioned. And it has a banner a standard, a flag. And imagine a person living in this castle, living in this fort. And this is a simile for the average person. This isn't a simile for the arahant. If you thought I was talking about an arahant living in a castle, it's actually quite the opposite. The ordinary person is like a person living in a castle. Safe, secure. And so we live our lives very much committed to our castles. Committed to our safety and security stability. Not ever really realizing that it's actually not us. It's not it's not keeping anything out. The castle serves as a for serves the purpose of keeping us in. It's actually a prison. We're trapped. We're trapped in this very secure prison. Very secure, very safe. Safe in the sense that there's no there's no real concern that we might ever escape. So it's safe by the standards of any jailer or anyone who's who might be keeping a prisoner. We're locked in and the walls are secure. There's a big bar on the outside of the gate that we can't get in, we can't get out. And there's a moat surrounding it. So even if we did get out, how would we how would we get across the moat? Full of crocodiles and sharks and whatever. Snakes.
So we live this life constantly. We're, we're, we're so trapped and we trap ourselves. The key point in Buddhism is that there is no jailer. There is no one keeping us trapped in all the things that we're trapped in. It's us. We've made our bed. We lie in the bed that we've made. We're trapped in the prison that we created and we continuously create. The worst part is we're constantly fixing this, the prison, making it more secure. We're acting in ways that make us more trapped. When we get caught up in with with people, with possessions, caught up in so many situations, so many prisons. We have the prisons that are external with other people, our relationships, when we when we get engaged, involved with others romantically, when we have children, when we go into debt, when we take on duties and obligations, when we, when we become famous, powerful, powerful people, no? You think of how powerful a king is. The king is the most trapped, constantly, constantly having to watch themselves when someone becomes president, prime minister, king, when someone becomes the CEO of a company, well, we become more and more trapped. Trapped not only in suffering, but trapped in in your own deeds and your own attachments. The more power you become, the more intoxicated you become, the more the potential for evil and your you're securing all of the different aspects, digging the moat deeper, strengthening the walls, adding more locks and bars. So the Buddha gave five sim these five similes that are one is required to overcome and become free from suffering. The first is the bar across the door. This thing, that no way to get through the door with that bar there. You've got to remove it. And this, the Buddha said, is a simile for ignorance. Ignorance is this immovable object. It's like a, a simple equation. With the bar there, it's categorically impossible to leave. With ignorance in place, without knowledge without wisdom you can never become free from suffering something we should all remember no matter how hard you work until you overcome ignorance without overcoming ignorance you'll never be free so what this looks like in meditate in some meditation the, the goal is only to feel calm or peaceful or experience some altered state and the stated goal is often not wisdom not understanding not trying to see things clearly. And without that, you can't ever expect to be free. It's the bar across the door. And then there's the second is the bolt. I'm going in the wrong order here, but I want to keep up the imagery of the castle because first you have, have to get rid of the bolt. Get rid of the bolt, which I guess is a lock. The Buddha said, well, that's all the many fetters that keep us trapped in our castles, trapped in our prisons. Views, wrong views that are the basis of so much unwholesomeness. When you don't believe in the consequences of deeds, and so you do whatever you want, seeing the, the results. When I do what I want, I get what I want. That's such a wrong view. So, so such a misled view. There's no consequences. That being mean and nasty and evil doesn't affect your mind, corrupt your mind. 
and affect the, your interaction or your relationship with the world around you, even physically, even your body. Um, things like wrong practices, doubt is one of them, when you're not sure of what to do and so you just do whatever you feel like. And craving and aversion, hate, hatred, passion, how much cruelty and evil and how much suffering we cause for ourselves and others through our greed, the rapacious greed of the world that's destroying the environment. If you ever wanted an example of consequences, we thought we could just keep taking and taking. And first of all, it's on, of course only only some of us who can take, not all of the world is able to take. But even beyond that, the taking has to eventually have its consequences. These are the lock. These are, but once you've taken away the lock, you still have to deal with this castle. You have to make a decision, a couple of decisions. First of all, the decision to destroy the castle, to say, I'm going, this is no longer what I want. So you have to dismantle it. And this is how life works. You can't just decide you're going to leave it. Quite often there are affairs that have to be put in order, debts that have to be paid. And ultimately you have to make a decision. This decision the Buddha the destruction of the dismantling of all the pillars. He said the pillar, pulling out all the pillars, uprooting them, dismantling the castle. This is a simile for craving, abandoning craving. When you have no wants anymore. If you want to free yourself in life and decide to live a life that is without 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 binds, that is free, that is liberated. Craving is the strongest bind. To free yourself from any attachment, bias, any craving whatsoever, if you want to be free. Once you've dismantled that, the last thing, no, not the last thing, the next thing to do is to cross the moat, right? Fill in that moat. Fill in the moat so you can actually get across. Now let's put the moat last, because before that there's one other thing you should do, and that's cut down the, the flag. Do that first before you get across the moat. And the banner, the flag, that this is especially... Interesting. The, the, this refers to conceit. So you give up craving, that's one thing. But there's something else. And that is the attachment to self. Even if you dismantle the castle and you just still have this flag up, means you still have the idea that this is me, this is mine. It's a big part of the castle. Maybe you have to take the flag down first. Even an arahant or even an anagami still has still has some craving, but I guess you get rid of them together. The the flag this is our idea that we are we are this, we are that. And the Buddha equated the flag with a burden. He said this is this flag that we keep up there that we proudly display. This is our burden as human beings. Our position, our reputation. 
whenever we take on some kind of identity. I am a teacher. I am a parent. I am king. We have a reputation and a... a, a appearance. We have appearances to keep. We have people's expectations to meet. You know, when we have a flag that we have to hold ourselves up to. So we take that down. Taking down the flag, this is a simile for conceit, a simile for all of this. All of this identity and the attachment to roles and, and reputation and who I am. And then you fill in the moat. Once you've cut down the flag, then you fill in the moat. You've put down this, this heavy burden of conceit, of having to be something, having to maintain some kind of reputation, appearances. Then you fill in the moat. And the moat is the last thing because without, without filling in the moat, no matter where you go, you're always going to come back to the same spot, right? You've break down everything, the prison, you've completely freed yourself from this prison. And then you start to leave. Okay, but I can't go this way because there's water there. So you turn and walk. And you walk and you walk and you walk and you keep turning when you come to water. And eventually you come back to where you started. So you're free from all these things, but there's something missing. There's one other factor. And that is filling in the moat. The Buddha said this is a simile for samsara, the rounds of rebirth. Of course, this all happens together. Once you've destroyed the castle, the moat, now you can fill it in with all the stone that, you, 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 that was used to create the prison. But freedom from samsara, not having to come back and do this again and again and again, how many times we've done this and forgotten. Walking around in circles. Once you've filled in the moat, once you've done what needs to be done to completely free yourself from the prison, then, then you can go on your way. Free free as a bird. So I thought this was an interesting simile, the simile of the castle. All of this is a description of the stages of practice or the, the progress that one makes in coming to see clearly and change one's perception about the oneself and the world around. And it feels very much like a dismantling of views, beliefs, identities, cravings, biases. It's apt because this is the sort of feeling that you'll get. You'll find yourself letting go. You'll find yourself simplifying and reducing the, the identity that you have towards things. Until eventually you feel you feel completely unattached, as though there isn't even a self or a me. And you would just be. So that's the Dhamma for today. If we have any questions, we can move on to the question period. So in chat, I'd ask only that people ask questions and try to keep your questions simple, straightforward. Be mindful and respectful in asking. Try and do your best to have proper grammar. And have them be relevant to meditation. We're here to help. We're not here to 
to think or to ponder or to satisfy curiosity or that sort of thing, theorize, philosophize. We're here to help. What, what help do you need? We're here to help with your meditation practice. If you don't have any questions, you're welcome to just listen, close your eyes. And, and join us in the cultivation of wisdom and understanding. My practice has brought some things to light. I have an obsessive fear of forgetting. When studying the suttas, I read and reread compulsively, spending hours on a single sentence. Same with these Q&As. I rewatch them many times, trying to commit everything to memory. In meditation, the problem deepens. I grasp at important thoughts, fearing forgetting. Any advice? Well, it's a simple thing. Meditation brings to light our our attachments, brings to light the problems we might have in mind. And a, an, a central part of the meditation practice is to simplify and to identify, to isolate the realities. Think of them as realities in the sense that there are aspects of the narrative, the description that we give that are real, and there are parts that are perhaps not real. So the obsessive fear of forgetting is a description of it, but I try and isolate the realities. The realities are moments of fear, and then there's going to be thoughts that bring on the fear. There might even be sensory input that brings on the fear or brings on the thoughts. And each of those is a distinct, discrete reality. Try and take those as objects. It helps change the way we look at things. And rather than hold on to our uh, qualities of mind and use them as tools or weapons, it helps us to take them as the object and use mindfulness as the tool to see them clearly and to deconstruct and and re, re, relieve ourselves of the craving and clinging and attachment. So you would just say to yourself, afraid, afraid. If you haven't, I would suggest you consider reading our booklet on how to meditate. If you've done that, I suggest you consider to sign up for an at-home meditation course. It's all free. And we can meet and talk. I wouldn't be too concerned. It, it's not. It sounds like it's just something that you haven't approached from a meditative perspective perhaps and once you do you should find that it's not that hard to deal with so many of our mental problems are incredibly easy to not necessarily cure but to come to terms with and to start on a course of of, of getting a better relationship towards them I mean, it's, it's incredibly easy to turn them from problems into challenges or into um, just areas of of focus where the way you you relate to them means they still arise because you know it's a long process of removing them, but they no longer have the power to cause you to do and say and think things that are going to harm yourself and others. That's the first thing that mindfulness does. It doesn't remove your problems. It just helps you reframe them. And that, that reframing is the beginning. It's It's what gets you on the course of changing them because they change based on the fact that you no longer are you're no longer uh, deceived by them you're no longer deceived into thinking that they're somehow going to solve, going to help you going to benefit you My mind tends to wander without great effort for being mindful. Should I instead watch and let the mind do what it does instead of forcing mindfulness? 
you should say to yourself wandering or thinking or distracted every time you can. And once you've done that, you should go back to the main object. You shouldn't need to force at that point, because at that point the mind should have let go. If there is clinging, you should just note that instead. But for just thoughts, you would just note thinking or distracted or wandering and then go back. Can meditation become addictive? And if so, is this bad? So uh, practically speaking, I guess immediately the answer is yes, but the, the, the deeper point is that meditation doesn't exist. It's not a thing. And you can't get addicted to things that don't exist. You get addicted to things that actually exist. And that's a big part of the practice is sort of delving and discovering what those things are. What is it that you're actually addicted to? What is it that you actually like or want? I wonder if this is a speculative question. Um, so if possible, don't try to let me know what your problem is or that sort of thing. But yeah, addiction is bad. It's just that you can't be addicted to a thing that doesn't exist. You'd be addicted to a thought or an experience. How can I practice while being heartbroken, rejected, or jealous? It's more than sad, discouraged, and overwhelmed. It feels more like actually dead, lifeless, hypnotized. By which I guess you mean you dislike it. <laughs> because I don't know what it would mean to feel dead. Um, and literally that's not what you're feeling, although that's a, I understand the description. Lifeless. Lifeless might be... Maybe a little closer. I mean, it still means dead, right? But the idea is that there's a... Well, the, the problem is there's going to be more than one thing there. There's going to be a feeling of having no feeling. Um, and there's going to be feeling... A disliking for that or, or a, a lack of any sort of ability to to think outside of the obsession think outside of that which has devastated you but there's there's more going on there than just being dead and lifeless because the, see the thing about feelings like that is they're often the results of other feelings when you feel emotionally drained right but well, why do you feel emotionally drained? It's because of other feelings that have drained you or drain you constantly. So those are still going on, and those are things like sadness, discouragement, you know, things like being overwhelmed, angry. There can be feelings of pain physically even because of the emotion so strong. But you have to break it down. There's nothing wrong with the feeling of being dead, honestly, dead and lifeless, because those are also descriptions that you could, or those are descriptions of things that could also be described alternatively as, say, peaceful, calm, right? So the actual lifeless, dead feeling, uh, until you add something else, some other flavor or quality, like the, the disliking of it, the pejorative sense, like, I want to be alive, but I'm not. It's just it's just being calm or peaceful. And that can often happen after you're emotionally drained. There's nothing left. And because reality doesn't care what you're feeling, reality is just going to continue on anyway. And that continuing on can be quite peaceful. Because you're you're no longer you're just waiting for reality to care, for reality to say, hey, you know, take pity on me. And reality's like, nah, we're just gonna keep seeing and hearing and smelling. What I mean to say is that there's really no meaning behind being heartbroken or rejected or jealous. And reality doesn't care whether you are. You're just going to have to eventually get over it. I'm, not to sound cruel or harsh, but reality is cruel and harsh in that way. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no 
caring, loving entity that's going to fix your problems. Ultimately, it's just you coming to terms with it. And a part of that, so part of the experience is going to be actually seeing that there's no, there is no problem. A part of the lifeless dead experience is the part that's no problem. It's actually those things that that are, are apart from that that are the problem. The extra things. Because once they're gone, you might still feel, you know, no feeling, which means you might feel sometimes very peaceful, very calm, very natural, normal. The thing that's that's hurting you is not the not the state where there's no feeling. It's it's all the feelings that lead to it. They can be very strong, and there can be uh, triggers, memories, and so on. But all of those are real, and all of those are an object. It's, it's not easy. Craving and clinging and addiction are, are very hard to overcome. But it's not so hard to change the way you look at it and start to see it as just experiences. If I'm texting someone while watching one of your videos, what should I note since I'm doing two things at once? You shouldn't do two things at once, I guess. Try not to text people while you're listening to the Dhamma. And this, uh, the best way is to consider this to be a, a sort of a special activity where you commit to be respectful. It's not very respectful to do that while listening to the Dhamma. Right, not sorry. I guess you're not talking about this video, but yeah, you, if you're going to listen to the to the Dhamma, listen to to something important. You should give it your full attention. But. You're never actually doing two things at once mentally. So mentally, there's going to be an attention focused on one or the other. You should know whatever that is. The more I meditate during the day, the harder I find it to sleep. I try to meditate when lying down, when I can't sleep, but I think this makes my mind more active. Any advice? Yeah, don't worry too much about sleep. Your 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 mind sleeping is not that hard. Um, but if you're not ready to sleep, just don't, just do meditation. It's a great opportunity to stay awake. In the beginning, your mind can sometimes be imbalanced and the way you approach the meditation can be stressful and that sort of thing. Um, and so you might find that you're sleeping less sometimes, but your mind will make up for that. And actually, if you're being mindful, it's not that big of a problem. You can be quite rested if you keep up the practice. You don't need to sleep as much. You can think of it to some extent as a replacement for sleep. Not entirely, but there are some good qualities to being mindful that will allow you to do with less sleep. Biggest thing, the biggest answer to the question of how to, uh, how to deal with insomnia is to not be so concerned about falling asleep. Stop Stop thinking at all about the falling asleep. That will come when it's going to come. At times when meditating, I feel a very strong pull into what I can only describe as oblivion. I startle when I feel this moment coming on and my concentration is broken. Any advice? It's just a feeling. Nothing special about it. Just say feeling, feeling. Don't worry about describing it. It's just a feeling. 
when you're startled, well, that's also a feeling. Can I do one day of 12 hours of meditation on the weekend? Is there a problem with doing these long sessions in normal life? Is it okay? So the problem with it is that you're going to be doing unskilled meditation. If you don't work your way up to that, it's quite possible that it will be unskilled. And unskilled meditation, and what that means is that there's not a lot of mindfulness, there's the potential for bad habits developing because it's so sudden. It's the kind of thing that you could do if you were also doing meditation throughout the week. So if you're doing at least two hours a day, let's say, or maybe three hours a day, then doing a lot more is, is easier because you're skilled. You're, you're, you have the skill and you have the quality of mind to, to support that. So quantity, the problem with quantity is always going to be the quality of it. It's not to say that it's not great. It is a great thing to do, but only if the quality is there. And to ensure that, you have to be prepared for it. If you just suddenly do 12 hours without any preparation, it can be somewhat low quality. And there's problems that can come from that. What should I do if I try to quit the meditation early? Try and note the reasons why you're thinking of quitting, the desire to do something else, the aversion to the meditation, boredom, restlessness. If you do end early, that's fine. It's not the end of the world. But the important part of meditation is learning how our mind works and trying to discover what's going on in every moment in our mind. So try and figure that out. Take, try and take those things as objects. What is the best way to get rid of doubt? Doubt is overcome by certainty, right? So what is it? What do you need to be certain? You have to see for yourself. So the purpose of meditation is to look and to see. And when you see, you don't have any reason to doubt. It takes a little bit more than that. It takes seeing to such a degree that the mind becomes convinced to to such a degree that there's there's a clarity and a certainty involved in it but the real ultimate thing that frees one from doubt is seeing nibbana when one has had an experience of cessation then doubt is gone I find that I've been able to return to the present frequently enough that I only have to deal with unpleasant sensations for a brief moment. Is this correct practice, or do you think I'm running away? So unpleasant sensations are in the present moment. So as long as you're noting them until they go away, then there's no problem. But if you talk about returning to the present as in ignoring unpleasant sensations, that's not right because those present sen those unpleasant sensations are present. That's all. There's no running away involved with noting and being aware of things. So if things go away quickly, well, that's not your problem. Just make sure you're not ignoring or avoiding anything. I feel anxious for my doctor appointment this coming Friday. How should I meditate to help me not be so scared? So try and look at the fear. The most important thing in mindfulness is to, to remove the idea that uh, you can or should get rid of the experience. 
So our ordinary thinking about anxiety is how can I get rid of it, or with anything like this, how can I get rid of it? That's actually problematic because it, it's encouraging the aversion and it actually feeds the problem. Try and change the way you think, way you think to be just how can I see this more clearly without any expectation that the anxiety or whatever it is might go away. So when you're scared, just try and stay with the fear and be committed to staying with it whenever it comes up. It's like playing, having a stare down. You, you, you stare at it until it blinks, until it looks away, because it will. Once you, as soon as you've committed, as soon as you've changed your mind about it, of course, it's because it's your mind, right? As soon as you change your mind to be, to be stable, to be unmoving, unshaken, the fear is no longer no longer has a support. Do you have any recommendations on how to best deal with anger in the moment? During meditation is one thing. However, outside of it, it feels much more difficult. Well, everything outside of meditation is going to be a little more difficult in the sense that you're going to be more distracted. But it's ultimately just practice. I have no answer for you besides just keep working on it. But working both, you know, in, in your meditation, be mindful of the anger, saying angry outside of meditation as well. When you're angry outside, just try and be mindful. Again, you're not going to make these things go away because you want them to. They're only going to go away once you see them clearly enough, and that takes a long time. It takes a lot of work. So don't be don't be expectant that they shouldn't arise or that they should go away. Try and learn to see them more clearly, because that's the the ultimate solution. That's what makes them eventually go away. If they're arising, it means there's nothing you can do about it, because that's seeing wrongly. That's the the state of mind that is unclear, that is deluded. So the, the goal is not to stop them from arising or get them to go away. It's to see so clearly that you just aren't inclined to give rise to them anymore. Meaning don't don't be discouraged when they come up. Just commit to your practice. Okay, now I'm angry. Don't try and pretend that you're not or make yourself not be. And it's just angry, angry. How do you know you are making progress in meditation? You know when you have less greed, less anger, and less delusion. That's the, strictly speaking, best answer. But, as I've said many times, I would recommend not being so concerned with progress because it's misleading, it's discouraging, it's confusing because it's not a straight path where you're walking up a ramp, right? We're complex individual, we're complex beings, our minds are complex. So I expect ups and downs, good points, bad points. And if you're fixed on, fixated on results and progress, you're always going to be discouraged and you, know, you, lose, you lose quality of meditation because you're no longer focused on mindfulness, you're focused on getting something from the mindfulness, which is discouraging, which is unhelpful. Can meditation be practiced alongside psychotherapy? Or does such a focus on the past defeat the purpose of meditation? I don't know that psychotherapy has to be focused on the past, but um, I assume you're talking about, I, I don't know much about psychotherapy, but I assumed that it was just a field that had many different applications or types. But that which does focus on the past 
Um, yeah, I would say that's probably... It's a little bit distracting at the very least. Like I think a lot of the techniques they use are going to be based on mindfulness or, or in at least in accordance with mindfulness. But I don't. I think the point is you don't need to do that. You don't need to bring up past experiences because through meditation they come. The, the important ones come up anyway, and that's much more valuable when when they come up on their own. Then you can see the, what what leads them to come up. You can see the the intensity of the attachment that you have towards them. Take things as they come. It's a be much better attitude, and that attitude is important. So bringing things up is a bad attitude. A bad. It's an it's an inferior perspective, or or be attitude behavior. Is continuing to follow your desires and attempting to do so mindfully preferable to abstaining from desirable things at the risk of repressing your desires? So you don't repress your desires. You just have to deal with them and deal with the withdrawal from them. It's always better to abstain from things. It's going to, in the long run, uh, make things easier. But when you do that, of course, you have to go through withdrawal. And if you're not mindful... It can be quite extreme, and it can lead you to do bad things. So I would say to the extent that you can deal with them, abandon them. And try your best to, to put yourself in a position to deal with more and more of them. Certain things are reflexes. They're inherent. Is it fair to say, or appropriate to say, you should just note them, let them pass, experience them, and let them pass? I don't know if I'd agree that anything is reflexive, reflex, or in inherent. I get where you're coming from, that, that there's obviously a lot of things that a lot of times we'll have an experience where it's clear we weren't the, we weren't consciously instigating that but I wouldn't put such descriptions on things as being inherent or reflexes as with everything I mean th that's true with everything you should note it let them pass experience them and let them pass Is it a good idea to practice the Satipatthanas while driving? It is a good idea, except that it may put you to sleep. So you have to be careful. If that's happening, you might want to switch to doing something else like chanting, something to wake you up. Just be aware of that. If you start to feel drowsy, you should switch to something a little more uh, invigorating. It's not that there's anything technically wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong with crashing and dying, right? But... That's what mindfulness may do to you, you see. If you're very mindful, you may fall asleep. You may have a moment of being nodding off or that sort of thing. Chanting is really good, I found, when I used to, when I used to drive. Learned some good Buddhist chants. I feel it is complex to be mindful throughout the day. Can we start being mindful for a few hours a day and progress on so forth? Rather than that, I would just limit it to what's really essential. Whenever you can, try and remember the four postures of the body. That's the basis for being mindful outside of practice. Walking, standing, sitting, lying. Try and note those whenever you can. And note simple movements of the body as an extension. You can also pick specific exercises. Oh, now I'm going to be eating, so remember to note chewing and swallowing. Oh, now I'm going to take a shower, so I'll remember to note scrubbing and that sort of thing. 
Bhante, we've reached the end of the practice questions. Shall we continue? I think that's good for today. If there's no more, no more mindfulness questions or meditation questions. We have some more coming in now. We have at least one about mindfulness in general. May I ask that? Go for it. Can mindfulness help us during emergency situations? Mindfulness is always useful. There's no situation in which mindfulness couldn't help you, especially emergency situations. See, the thing is, it can only help you if you're good at it, if you're skilled at it. So it's not like you can say, oh, I'm in an emergency, I'm going to learn how to meditate now, right? If you haven't been practicing it, it's useless. Just be clear about that. So absolutely, it's use helpful during emergency situations, but uh, you have to be ready, for, you have to be skilled at it in order to use it. I never want to do walking meditation. How do I make myself so that I do both types of meditation? Well, note the disliking of it. Why is it you don't want to do walking meditation? Try and note that. That's what we're here to see. That's why we're doing these things, to see how our mind works. So it's not some reason not to do something. It's a reason to learn about why it is you don't want to do it. Are we done? We're done. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for your help, Olivia, Chris, Max. Thank you, Bhante. Sadhu. Sadhu.